Just pray for Stephen as he comes and gives us the, the word this morning. Father God, we just pray for Stephen as he brings your word. Bless him as he preaches and bless the word to our ears and to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, all. Just before I start, there's a, an old hymn that I've used for quite some time now um, as a prayer. Um, and it says this, uh, O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze, and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to live and work and think for thee. Still let me guard the holy fire and still stir up thy gift. Ready for all thy perfect will, my gifts of love and grace increase till death your final mercy seal and make the sacrifice. When I have the privilege of speaking at Christmas, as I have over some years now, um, some, one of the first questions I often ask is, whose birthday are we looking forward to? Uh, and everyone gets it wrong because the answer is actually mine. <laughs> my birthday is on Christmas Day, um, as was my mother's. Um, and I will never forget when I was old enough to understand, she said I was the worst person she ever had. <laughs> she, she was joking. She was joking. So, there's a huge polarization today with Christmas. There's the, the secular side of Christmas that most of us um, have come to know. Um, that's the, the biggest part of the celebration now in the world, the decorations and the lights. And there's also the Christian side. And some people say it's a great shame that we seem to be losing the meaning of Christmas. Well, the reality is that Christmas actually started as a pagan festival. So not the birth of Christ, of course, but the Christmas trees and the lights. Um, that was a pagan festival. Now, what used to happen is that they had fertility cults in the old days. Uh, and on 21st of December, which is uh, the shortest day of the year, for them, that was the death of the sun. And the Romans, they called the sun god Mithras. Uh, and so the people that actually worshipped the sun god, they saw that as the death of the sun god. And yet on the 25th, this is when the sun was reborn and it came back to life. And this is when they used to start to celebrate. So they would put their trees up and they would dance around them. They'd cut a huge tree down in the forest, drag it in, and it was called the Yule Log. And you still see Christmas cards today and it says Happy Yuletide. And that actually goes back to the pagan festivals. The celebration lasted 12 days and that's sort of remembered in the, the carol that is sometimes sung about the 12 days of Christmas. It says, on the 12th day of Christmas, my true love said to me, and it talks about a partridge and a pear tree. But the 12 days of Christmas, historically in the pagan festivals, every community, every little town and village, they would elect a lord of the feast. For that 12 days, that lord had the choice of any women, any girls, every day, all day, for the whole of the 12 days. And that's actually where that song comes from. And so it seems very much like instead of us losing that meaning of Christmas, we're actually starting to slide back 
so often into the actual pagan side of Christmas. If you look and see what's advertised on television, it seems to be, I mean, alcohol sales are huge at Christmas. Uh, I'm not saying don't drink alcohol. I'd rather a nice glass of Rioja last night myself. That's fine. I think it's um, proportionality with all of these things. And so if you look at the pagan festivals, and they were ungodly people, of course, that does seem to be creeping back more and more and more um, into um, society. And so Pope Gregory, this was in about 596 AD, he decided he was going to send a, a missionary um, over to our shores to uh, Christianize us pagans that were here. Um, and he sent uh, Augustine, uh, who was a, a, a monk in the Catholic Church, and he actually landed in Kent um, and in Canterbury. And it proved impossible to stop the pagan festival. So as the Catholic Church uh, often did, it started to try to Christianize what was going on. And the words of the Pope was, okay, we can't stop it, we'll baptize it into Christ. And so what they did is they carried on with this pagan festival. They baptized it into Christ and used it in the mass. And so it became Christ mass or Christmas as we know it today. And of course, there's also the story about the Turkish Bishop, um, Nicholas, um, and in the village where he lived, uh, there was a poor man uh, who had three daughters and they had no money. And in those days, if you were to get married, you needed some cash and they didn't have any. And so one night he crept by and put these bags of gold through the window. And, uh, they didn't actually put them down the chimney, it actually was put through the window. And when they woke up in the morning, there was this gold and that meant they had a dowry to get married. And so over time, um, he became St. Nicholas. Uh, and because his name, Nicholas, was actually spelled L-A-U-S at the end, that quickly became St. Nicholas Santa Claus. And that is where Santa Claus came from. And of course, it was the Americans that invented Father Christmas in the red suit, as we know. And I think it was a Coca-Cola advert that started all that. So to go back to the real Christmas and the birth of Christ, and that is, a, again, a curious mixture of truth uh, and fiction. Um, it talks about the three wise men. Well, scripture doesn't actually talk about three wise men, but it talks about three gifts. And if you have a, look at a little um, knitted um, stable scene under there, um, there's some gifts there as well. So I guess what's happened is because it was gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they decided it must have been three people um, that came. And they weren't kings, they would have been Jewish um, wise men. Uh, in some carols we sing, don't we? We three kings of Orientar, um, and they probably would not have been uh, kings at all. Um, and I'm sort of reminded of a, a little story about a school nativity play. Uh, and I love nativity plays, I think they're just great. Um, and so there's the nativity play, and the little boys, and I don't know, you may have done when I was very young. Um, I used to have a tea towel on my head every Christmas and wear a striped dressing gown and sit cross legged in the hall, and I'd be a shepherd. Um, I never got one of the major speaking parts, so I was always like you know, a shepherd in the background. But the story is that the three boys come in dressed as, um, as wise men uh, to actually present their gifts to Jesus. Uh, and the first boy comes and says, I bring gold, you know, to the king. And the second boy totally forgot his lines. He was the one bringing frankincense. And so legend has it that he actually said, I've got a present here from Frank. <laughs> <laughs> So Jesus was probably born at the end of September and coming into October, because if you read the Gospel accounts, then it was during the Passover. If you look back at uh, Matthew's Gospel as well, and you look at Elizabeth, 
who was pregnant and had the baby left in the womb, you can actually start to work out a bit of a timeline of when Jesus would have been born. So that doesn't detract from the fact that we actually celebrate it as on the 25th of the like Queen having her second birthday. Um, but you know, if the, the, the reality, I think, in that kind of um, point, you know, doesn't 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 really uh, cause any issues. And of course, Jesus' birth was prophesied hundreds of years before he was born. Um, there's Isaiah uh, was one of the prophecies, which is Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, and Isaiah was written between uh, about 765 and 680 uh, BC. Um, so that was, um, you know, quite some time. And Isaiah 9, 6 um, says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And also in the book of Daniel, it was written about 605, 636 BC, Jeremiah 627 to 582 BC, and 2 Samuel, that was written sometime before 900 BC. So the main reading that I want to concentrate actually is Luke chapter 1 from verse 26, one from 26 up until 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greeting you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. That's reflections of, of what was in Isaiah. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who is simply barren, is in her sixth month. But nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me. As you have said, then the angel left. All the world knows when Jesus was born, using the, the date of 25th of December. There is no other person in the whole of history that is as celebrated as Jesus. There are famous people. Charles Darwin, he's a famous scientist. You mentioned Charles Darwin. Most people know who Charles Darwin was. And I don't subscribe to Charles Darwin. I've started reading his book, Origin of Species. You say to people, well, when was Charles Darwin born? Well, yeah, obviously I do You ask people, when was Jesus born? Even the most adamant atheists will say, oh, Christmas Day, 25th of December. Everyone knows who Jesus was and when he was born. A calendar is even based on his birth. If you look at the date today, which is Charles born, so. 
the 12th, then that's like the 12th of December, 2021, and sort of 2000 plus 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 years from when the sort of birth of Jesus was, although we can't be exactly precise. So even the calendar that we look at speaks of Jesus. Jesus predicted by prophecy, conceived by unnatural means, protected as an infant, faced temptation, was associated with shepherds. He possessed supernatural power. He recognized that a sacrifice was required for the forgiveness of sins. He established a divine mill, the communion or in my tradition, uh, the Lord's table, um, as it was always known as. He had the power and has the power to defeat death, offers eternal life, and he will judge the living and the dead. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus that we celebrate coming up to Christmas now. Jesus has had a greater impact on the world than collectively every single famous person you can ever think of from time immemorial. More books have been written about Jesus than about any other person ever. If you think about famous people, William Shakespeare, Lenin, Karl Marx, Buddha, others worshipped by um, millions of people, none of them collectively have had books written about them, as has Jesus. No other religious figure has inspired so many films and screenplays as Jesus across the whole world in almost every language that you can care to mention. So even those that don't believe in Jesus, even those that don't worship Jesus would read it, they would have heard or seen about him, read in books, seen in films. No other person has had impact that Jesus has had on art. Without exception, every single master who has painted in the past, such as Rubens, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, they have painted and been inspired by Jesus. No other person in history has had as many paintings inspired as Jesus had. Jesus has inspired every genre of music that you can care to think about. Whoever your famous recording group or artist might be, I guarantee you, with the exception of just two, they have sung and written songs about Jesus. And you might be surprised to hear such groups as Muddy Waters, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan, Diana Ross, Alice Cooper, Eminem, and surprisingly, a group called the Beastie Boys, uh, and Guns N' Roses. So even these way out groups they have sung songs about Jesus, not always um, from a point of view it's accepting him who he is, but they've been influenced by him and by his life. So you look up any of your favorite um, people, whatever, you'll find they have actually written a song, uh, or a song, song, I should say, about Jesus. Universities, three universities started by followers of Jesus hundreds of years ago, one in Bologna, one in Oxford, and one in Paris. They became the models that every universe that exists in the world today. If you look at any, univer any university, they're the ones that were inspired by these three. So look at that massive impact that Jesus has had on the world. And if you can read, then we have to thank the followers of Jesus for that, because it was the followers of Jesus that wanted people to be educated. And as we know, the first printing press by people that wanted people to read the Bible. Um, if you go back in history, the Bible was written in Latin. You and I would not have been able to read it 
it would have been chained to a lectern and only the priests were the people that were allowed to read it. And so we have to thank Jesus' followers for the fact that we can read today. Have you ever thought what the world might be like if Jesus had never come? And I thought about that the other day. And that's quite an eerie prospect in many sort of areas, and not just the fact of salvation. Um, but you walk down the street here through Silver Heading, this church would be here, nor would the um, CD church up on the hill, and the little um, Baptist, strip Baptist chapel down the road at Winecastle. Those churches would not be there. There'd be no point, no Jesus, no church. There might have been synagogues, perhaps, but certainly there'd be no churches. There'd be no Christian uh, Christmas bells ringing out. It's lovely to hear from where I live. I can hear the church bells ringing out. And always at Christmas, you hear that lovely joyous peal. There'd be no songs such as Joy to the World, uh, the Lord has come. No book about Jesus on the shelves. There'd be no library because it was Jesus' followers <coughs> that instigated reading and the printing of books. So the chances are there'd be no libraries. There'd be no New Testament message of salvation. There'd be no words of resurrection, of promise, and of forgiveness. Probably no schools or universities. They were started by Jesus' followers. But he has come. And so we can sing, O come, all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. Come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the King of Angels. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Christ was born here below, that we might be born of us. Jesus had a normal birth, a conception, very unusual. And the setting was also very unusual. A one-off, never-to-be-repeated miracle. The story of a young Jewish couple in their teens. Mary would have been about 15 years old. Joseph, perhaps 19, 20. They certainly would have been very, very young. And it's the story of a couple who got married in a hurry because she was pregnant. She was conceived a child before she was married. In those days, you had like a ceremony that you would go through where you would sort of be betrothed and the understanding was you would get married, but that was normally a year or so away. And what would happen is the bride would be waiting. And I think if you, if you read the account uh, of Jesus, when he says about his father coming, he says, no one knows the time except my father in heaven. If you look at the old um, wedding ceremonies, what would happen is they would meet uh, and then they would exchange a cup, very much like communion. And he would put some wine in it, uh, the prospective husband and he would pass it to his bride and if she took it and she drank from it his little heart went up because it meant that she was accepting him and so she would drink the wine then they would go their separate ways and she would actually be in her house and she would get ready for the wedding and that's the parallel when Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish virgins he says be ready because no one knows the hour when the bridegroom, bridegroom will come and so the bride she would be in her house she would know when he was coming, she'd have her attendance, but she would be ready. And even the uh, groom himself did not know when it would take place. And the parallel there with Jesus, when he says, I don't know when I'm going to come back. I don't know when this will happen. Only my father in heaven. The only person that knew was the groom's father. And then one day, as the bride should get her dresses, get her things, uh, he would start to build his house. The, uh, 
the, the groom, because what they'd do is mum and dad lived here, they'd build them on the side. So when Jesus says, In my father's house, there are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you, that is exactly what would have happened. The groom was starting to build a place onto his father's house where they would live. And then one day, middle of the night, dad would come in and say to his son, Son, go get your bride. One day, the father is going to say that to Jesus. For us, son, go get your children, and he's going to come for us. That is the truth of scripture. That is so exciting. And then Jesus will come, and he will take his bride. And to go back to the parallel with uh, the husband and wife in the old days there, he would then go through, and he would actually knock at the bride's door. Will she be ready? Yes, of course she was. And then that would be the great wedding that would take place. So, to go back to the Christmas side of this shotgun wedding, Mary, she had to travel on a donkey. 70 miles she would have traveled from where they were uh, in Nazareth to Bethlehem for a decision that was made 2,000 odd miles away by Caesar Augustus. And it shows you how God can engineer things, how God can make things happen. Because again, prophecy says the Savior, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. Well, Joseph and Mary, they were living in Nazareth. And as you would know from scriptures, people have said in the past, anything good come from Nazareth? Well, something good did come from Nazareth, but they had to travel to Bethlehem for the birth to take place. <clears throat> I don't think that Mary's family would have wanted her there because she would have been a shame and a disgrace to the family. Here was this pregnant girl, and she would have been quite a big with child and by then. And she wasn't married, so a huge disgrace in those days. So she travels on the donkey uh, and travels uh, the 70 miles to Nazareth, to Bethlehem, sorry, because of this decree by Caesar Augustus. And so Luke 2, 1 to 7 says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee uh, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of Brian David. My tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. Not good at pronouncing words properly. So while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there were no room for him in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around. And they were terrified, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, and great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, the Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. A birth in Bethlehem, 2,230 miles away from where we now stand, if you're interested, celebrated still. And the scriptures foretold the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. So it was. Mary traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 
and because her people were willing to look after her, I guess she went um, with Joseph on this donkey. And the account that I've just, uh, just read recounts that the shepherds were the first to be told the good news that Christ was born. And the reality is, they would be the last people that would have been told in general, because we look at our very sort of sanitized scenes there. But the reality is that the shepherds were the lowest of the low. I mean, they were just above lepers. People hated them. They really were the unwanted and they were the outcast. Their sheep were a blessed nuisance. They were always going into other people's fields and eating the crops and spreading out because they had to move from field to field. So if you were actually drawing up a list of the people you wanted to be your witnesses for this great birth, this amazing event in history, the last people you would go to would be the shepherds. But they would have known what the angel was saying when he said, this will be a sign. What was the sign? The sign was, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. As shepherds, when lambs were being born for the Passover to be sacrificed at the temple, because young lambs would thrash around, and if ever you've been on the farm and see lambs, they'd dip about and try to stand up, they often used to get injured. So when a lamb was born that was specifically being bred without spot or blemish for the Passover, guess what? They would wrap it in swaddling cloths to stop it from being injured. So the lamb would be <coughs> in swaddling cloths. And any lamb that was for the temple sacrifice, guess where it would be born? Bethlehem. What a parallel with Jesus, the spotless lamb, the sacrifice of God that was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, wrapped in swaddling cloths because he was perfect, spotless, and unblemished. Perfect Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And the ones who were the least privileged were the ones that were the most privileged that actually saw Jesus. And that's the same throughout the gospel. Jesus uses people like you, like me, the underprivileged sometimes also that he will use for the glorification of his kingdom. People used to say Caesar is Lord in those days. Luke's gospel shows us that Caesar is a Lord. He points us to who is Lord and it's Jesus. And we might be sometimes today looking for another solution for our problems, looking even perhaps for another savior. But it's all about Jesus and there is only Jesus. The world isn't what we want it to be. And some of the hymns that we sang now were great because it actually speaks of the power of God and the love of God and how God changes things. But we don't always see it. We don't see it now. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet. And so there are things still to come to pass. And as I speak, Russia is massing on the border there of the Ukraine. And we worry about the war. And we've got this COVID blessed thing that's come up again. We've got Iran that wants to destroy the Jews and wants to destroy the land that Jesus came from. All of these issues. I wrote a poem, um, started to write a poem a few days ago. Some of you might write a bit of poetry here and there. And I started it like this. It says, wise men and shepherds worshipped as angels from the sky in celebration of the Saviour's birth. Yet still there is bitterness, a pungent smell of mirth. Where is the promised peace on earth? This was a sign, the star that came to rest 
over the place where Jesus lay, wrapped as a Passover lamb, the dearest and the best, bit of thorn laid by his head in that hay, yet still there is hate and war, the pungent smell of myrrh. Where is the promise peace on earth? I haven't finished it yet, I haven't put the words to it, but the answer to that question is right in front of us. To the Jewish wise men and the holy parents, Mary and Joseph, they were within touching distance. They would have held the baby. They would have touched the hope and the savior and the glory of the world encapsulated in human form. 1 John 1, verse 1 says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so the answer to that question, where is the peace on earth? It's there in Jesus. Not yet. Isaiah 9 2, and Jane and I make our own Christmas cards, and I put the verse in this year that says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. And this is Jesus, the light coming to the world. Jesus wasn't the Messiah that the Jews expected or wanted. He didn't satisfy their longing to be free of the Romans. And today, sometimes Jesus isn't the, the person that, that we want or expect. You know, there is this craze for money, popularity, big houses, wealth. None of that ultimately will satisfy. If things go wrong, if we lose a job or if we're ill or whatever, we say, what's God doing? And we can't always see what God's doing. And so for me this Christmas, and I hope for you, the invitation is to come to the manger, to look anew at Christ, to look anew at the birth of the child, to bend low before the lonely, to bend low before the, the things of the world that are despised. And look at Jesus, who was despised for us, broken for us. There will be a day when God will wipe every tear from every eye. That's when we will see. That's when we look at that peace on earth. Jesus alone is the answer. Always has been, always will be. From Genesis to the book of Revelation, all about Jesus. From the manger to the throne, it's all about Jesus. From creation to the end of days, it's all about Jesus. It always has been. No longer the baby, but God incarnate, King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign of the universe, King of those who love him. So may you see Jesus with fresh eyes this Christmas. May you celebrate the greatest event of the universe, the greatest thing that's ever taken place in our little world. And may you know the peace of God that passes all understanding. And keep your eyes fixed on that. This is all. Amen. Amen. Amen.